This week, we're starting a new conversation at FOS, Sorted Tales of Faith. Yep, that's in the Bible. The Bible is full of amazing stories of faith and courage and following Jesus. But the Bible is also full of crazy stories that seem more at home in Game of Thrones than in the biblical canon, especially in the Old Testament. It has just as much intrigue as the Tudor court or the Medici family. For the next five weeks, we'll explore some of our favorite, I can't believe that's in the Bible type stories. Here's the thing. If you were brought up in a faith tradition similar to mine, we were taught to gloss over the sordid stories and use them as spiritual metaphors or sanitize them to mean something else completely. But the reality is that yeah, that guy does commit human sacrifice. And yep, that book is talking about sex. And sure enough, if you look at almost any of your favorite beloved childhood Old Testament stories, you will find details that make you say WTF. I know for so many people who came of age hearing the sanitized versions of the Bible, the realization that it has some pretty messed up stuff written in it becomes a reason to never read the Bible again. Instead of Instead of that, though, I want to I want to propose that these stories are the exact reason why you should read it. Read it all. Compare it to the way that you've heard the words before. What new details stand out for you? I think that the reason that many of us have a hard time realizing that the Bible is not as neat and tidy as we've been taught it is, is because we've also been taught that the Bible is a rule book for life and faith. And if we follow what it says, then we will be good to go. But that makes the Bible out to be something that it never claims to be, nor does it want to be. The Bible is a collection of stories about humanity, and in particular, a tribe of people called the Israelites interacting with God, primarily told from their perspective. It tells the story in all sorts of ways, but never shies away from telling the whole story in all of its brokenness and beauty. It is, it is the Bible's honesty to go there that makes it holy. It gives us a glimpse of the divine and our own humanity. And we don't need to protect it. We don't need to redact it. And we don't need to defend the story. We need to read it and let it read us. So to start the conversation off, we're gonna look at one of the more peculiar stories in the Bible, the story of Hosea and Gomer. As we step into some of the more unseemly stories within scripture, we actually get confronted with storytelling that puts God into places we never thought we'd find him. Because within the storytelling, when we step into Hosea, God, the originator of marriage, the one who orchestrated and designed it, tells Hosea to go get a woman of prostitution. Get one, it says in, in chapter one, verse two, that it could be a woman who is a prostitute or is given to being promiscuous, we don't know. But what we do know is that God, the originator of all marriage, says that it is better for me to be able to communicate to the people that you go and have a messed up marriage. And it even takes it one step farther. He said, you're going to have kids and I'm going to name them. So his first kid comes and he says, name him Jezreel, which means God sows because I will no longer sow seed and nothing will grow here. Then it says that child went off weaning and had another child. It said, name this daughter Lo-Ruhama, which means without compassion, because I'll never again look at you with compassion. And then he says, to name your last child Lo-Ami, 
or bastard, not mine. So in a society based in shame, where your reputation and your name tells other people what to expect of you, you would hear a father saying to the child, not mine, bastard, you don't belong to me, come here. You would hear these names echo through town, it'd be such a shock that these were lived experiences, these were people being raised, these were children with trauma, just to prove a point. And it goes even farther in chapter two, verse 16, to where it has this scene of God saying, I'm going to strip Israel naked in front of all of her lovers. He said, I'm going to strip you naked and show you. And remember, this is in front of all her lovers. They've already seen her naked. This is the point of humiliation and shame and retribution. This is the point of saying, you've hurt me. I will get you back. And it says somehow in this weird, violent act, it said, you will no longer call me Baal. You'll no longer call me master, but you'll call me Ishu or husband. You'll no longer address me as power, you'll address me as relational. He said, this is no relationship any of us would ever want to have. This is no relationship that we would ever allow our friends, our loved ones, or our family to enter into. We would say leave. And if this is making you uncomfortable, you're not the first ones to be uncomfortable because as you get to the end of it, as you get to chapter 13, verses um, 14, there was a translation done in Alexandria, the one that Paul quotes, the one that ends happy. It's from the Greek translation in Alexandria. And they didn't know what to do with the tone. They didn't know what to do with the sequence. So they changed it. And in 14, where it says, will I deliver them from the power of Sheol? No, I will not. Will I redeem them from death? No, I will not. Oh, death, bring on your plagues. Oh, Sheol, bring on your destruction. The scribes said this ending needs to change because we cannot have this abusive relationship. We cannot have the fighting for lo ami. We cannot have Gomer shamed. We cannot have marriage destroyed. So they say, from the hands of Hades, I will rescue you. They say, out of death, I will redeem you. So it has this moment where they enter into the story, this pain, and they hear it for the affront that it is. They see it as the abusive relationship cycle and say, oh, this can't be it. And so they change the rhetorical question of will I deliver into an actual reality. They take potential and say it's definite. They take possibility and say this is the expected reality. Will I be delivered? And it comes into the time of Paul, it says, oh, death, where's your sting? For God will come and rescue me. Because these are the original people wrestling with the story of abuse and chaos to where God takes the central sacrament of marriage and says, it's not worth protecting right now because I want to make a point. I love the way that you told that story and really highlighted towards the end, um, the, the redemption aspect. I redeem, I redeem you from Hades. I redeem you from death. Um, Cause I think like, just if I'm honest, when I, when I you know, when I read that story, um, I'm so focused on the front loaded side of the story of, you know, like hearing Nelly Furtado sing promiscuous boy, promiscuous girl in the back of my head, as I'm hearing that story that I actually forget that the story ends with that redemptive narrative is like, is 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 as far as like Hosea 
you know, honestly, as far like 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 as far as Hosea fell, and I'll and I'll use Hosea because I because at the end of the day, he named his kids some pretty horrible things. Um, it's it's not just a story of Gomer's fall; it's a story of Hosea's fall. And I think that redemptive narrative at the end of it is not just speaking to Gomer; it's actually speaking to like this. This is this is a redemptive narrative of like you got like this is death. This is this is Hades. Um, and there's that redemptive piece out of it. So that's, that's the part that stood out to me. And, and I really loved hearing how, like how you actually brought that forth as something for us to wrestle through. I know for myself, um, what I love about Hosea is that it's a living text in these, that in the Hebrew, it's verse 14 doesn't give us redemption, but there's a big fight over what they should do, how they should read that rhetorical question. Because if you look at, the King James or the Jewish Publishing Society or the NIV, they all translate the Hebrew towards, yes, we should. But if you get some of the more literal, the NRSV, the NASB, the NET, they all say, should I deliver you? Absolutely not, because they read it as a negative question. And it has to do with us wrestling in this text. Like the potential is there, but we have to choose something to activate. And so when we enter into this, it, it also jars me because it's one of the times that use marriage in such a unique way that it takes it outside of this ultimate reality that God made for all time in order to make a pristine, perfect world and shows, at least to me, the constructive element of all lived experience, even for Gomer, even for Hosea, even for the children that move from not my people to mine, that no compassion to compassion, that it's, it's in which realities that we name that it gets the potential of Hosea. Yeah, that's good, man. That's good. All right, well, let's jump into the first question that we have for, for tonight. And the first question is, we all have parts of the Bible that we would rather gloss over or edit out. For example, when we read the story of Abraham, we conclude that he was a great guy because we gloss over and edit out the parts of the story that we don't want to hear. But the story of Hosea from start to finish is a story we would rather not read. Because of its brokenness, we are able to see the beauty of the story. What happens when we allow the broken parts of the Bible to read us as we read them? For me, when we have ourselves read by these stories, we get to enter into our own humanity because the word, the scriptures, our traditions no longer are sanitized events that have no colorful language. It becomes like some of the extreme language of Ezekiel, which says that, you know, you're a used menstrual rag. Um, it becomes like Hosea, which is even some of the most centering things in our world, which is the act of, um, marriage that we think is a cornerstone of not only our faith, but sometimes we talk about a cornerstone of society. And it, it brings me into this wrestling of what do we actually talk about? How do we create meaning? And how do I not be reactionary? Because these are such difficult things that my first reading of it, I want to side with Gomer and be like, you're a jerk. Don't treat her this way. Don't abuse her this way. I want to gather the kids and have these reactionary moments. But that awakens in me that that reality as well, that seeing pain and abuse reminds me of what the more beautiful story is. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. Um, 
Yeah, I think like, like I think like, like just alluding back to what I was saying before um, about the redemptive narrative part is as I let the like like as I read the story and I let the story read me, um, I can't just read I can't read read it and gloss over it in the way that you would with other texts. You know, you know what I mean? Like just pull out my favorite parts because like pretty much the whole thing is like that sucks. I would not want to be in the middle of that story, just you know, in, in all honesty. And uh, but at the at the same time. Um, like just what you were bringing out, like like the points of abuse, the points, or even the fact that like like the craziness, or the I would say the immorality of the of the of the request of God in this in this story, right? And like like you know, in order to do a, a, you know some performance art, hey Hosea, why don't you go m marry a hoe? You know what I mean? And in the mix of that, it's like, okay, God, like I get that when we read it back now. Here, here, here's the punchline we're supposed to bring from it. You know, you know what I mean that we take from it. But to like, like you know, to have someone go through that, if, if if it is a real story, to have someone go through that and not just be a parable. You know, like in order to basically be a parable, um, you got to wrestle with that part of it. You got to wrestle with with what, what what could that actually mean and why would that actually happen? Especially, I think in a culture where like you know, like for us, like we think about marriage, as you were talking about from as a cornerstone of society, but we also think about marriage as free choice, as as we marry for love, um, for the most part, right? But instead, going to a society where you married for prominence and position and and things like that, and so like we even when you begin to read the story from that perspective, it's like, oh, okay, Hosea is in a sense marrying way down the ladder, you know, you know what I mean? So if he's if, in a society that marries for position um Hosea basically takes the seat at the end of the table <laughs> it, 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 you, you know what I mean um to, to bring it into a Jesus parable um and, and, and but so so you, we begin to pull out these different pieces from it that I think we don't see if we just try to read straight through it you, you, you know what I mean because we try to we gloss over the fact that one it, it actually completely blows up the way that we would talk about marriage in in contemporary times but then two um, we actually have to wrestle with the immorality of God's request and, and, and Hosea and Gomer's response to it. Right. So in a society that marries for position, things like that, like, 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 I don't know for me, for me, at least having to wrestle through those pieces makes the story much more vivid because it's I, not just a I simple, a a, oh, so go ahead. So go ahead. Look, for the way you're answering that, as I, I noticed two moves that, um, one helped me enter the text. The other one, just seem like a, a reactive moment for how we deal with hard passages. As you mentioned a few times, well, if this, this story may not even be real, it, it is, and then you use parable or parabolic, in that first, the shock of the story, you're like, let's distance this from reality as far as much as possible, because a parable is aggressive, but at the end of the day, I can say, it's a parable, I don't have to worry about the children. Um, but also, in the other part of it, you said, um, ho, and for most of us, like we can read um, lo ami and not be affected. We can read lo ruhama and be like, cool, you named your kid weird sounds that I don't get because those aren't names we use. But in using chants of like ho, or like what I said in the, um, previously, bastard, bringing it into pejorative terms of our day, um, how do we get that 
connection that we can use language that allows us to emotionally invest ourselves in the story, not just say, okay, because like when I've heard Jesus and it says, if you call someone fool, you're in danger of hell. I was like, yeah, but fool doesn't hit me. Like at no point am I emotionally connected to fool. Like you called me a fool, huh? <laughs> you burned me. Like how, how do you wrestle with those two yeah. points, that distancing mechanism and actually that more tangible real that draws you in using modern language that makes it real for me? So, well, just to go back to the Jesus part that you just used right now, like to call someone fool would be the equivalent of in modern day calling a white person racist and the emotional response that they have. Just put it in context for you. <laughs> nah, bro. You know, I, I have a colored friend. Let me introduce you. Carl, meet Carl. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. And I, I guess like, I, like I didn't, I didn't mean to say um, if the story actually happened as a distancing measure, um, but more just as a realization that when we read the biblical text, um, some of our some of our favorite stories and some of the stories that we don't like are not necessarily meant to be like like they're they're true not in the sense of historically like this happened true but they're true because they tell us something greater than if it actually happened anyway so you, you know you know you know what I mean and so um, I was just trying to honor the fact that that there are multiple ways and under and the ways that people have read this text will read this text and continue to read the text you know as or as, as we go through it so that that's more what i was saying and it wasn't necessarily a distancing measure it was more just honoring the fact try, for me trying to honor the fact mm -hmm. that i know not everybody that hears that story is like that happened to a real person but i didn't say i didn't mean it in a way that said okay well let, let, let me pull back and not have to connect to the story because i think it actually said something greater regardless of whether it happened to a real person or not there's there's a truer truth to the story in that sense if that makes sense um and that's where, mm -hmm. what i was trying to what i was trying to get to even in in saying like creating like the parabolic moment of it is saying that like it's, it's meant to convey something to us as we read it even if, if it happened to somebody or didn't happen to somebody in real life is beside the point here's what we're supposed to actually capture as we read the story here's the emotive weight that we're, we're supposed to be hit with as we read that story if that makes sense no, you point out something very valuable for us in wrestling with these sordid details, with these stories we wish weren't actually in our text. Um, and that idea that truer than true, because it, it needs to bring us to this place of wrestling more than a place of arguing over the historicity of it, over the, if the camera was present, would it actually caught the way it was caught? Because you're right, um, academically, Jose is debated on um, whether there was a Gomer. So when it, when it comes to these, like, absolutely, um, we have to give respect to the wider reading, but I like that, that true and the true notion to where you don't get to ignore the weight and you don't get to get lost in the um, pedantic argumentation of, well, was they really around in the eighth century or was this a fifth century rereading of something? It's like, you have to sit with the pain of what the emotional response is there. No, absolutely. I think that's good. And I think like, like even like just couple that with the point that you brought to it of how do we actually, 
um, contextualize the story. One, like understand its historical context, but then say, what is the language, the emotional language that's going to actually sit with us now? I think if you put, if you partner those two things together, you're going to be miles ahead as you try to read the story. Like if you pause for a moment and say, okay, what language do I have to substitute in here for me to understand that like to call a child a bastard in today's day and age, it, it lands with the, you know, the, the, the impact of a plastic bag, you know what I mean? But to call mm -hmm. a child a bastard in that day and age is to disown any place within society. Right. So it has a whole lot of different weight. And so like we actually have to contextualize those words. Like bastard is just an insult now. Like if I say, hey, you're a bastard, you'd be like, Carl, that's me. Why would you say that? But if I actually said <laughs> it, you know, even even five centuries ago, it'd be like, oh, whoa, wait, wait. No, no, I know who my daddy is and he was married to my mama, okay? I know this, right? It has a whole well, different way to know your dad. Because as you're saying, it's that notion of, of rank because there's many bastards who knew their fathers but it's and he was married to and he was married to my mama. That that and he was married to my mama. <laughs> <laughs> got you, got you. I didn't get the conjunction. And that was a big and. I've been watching. I've, I've been watching uh like 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 a history on the two doors right now. So this is all like fun and games for me now. <laughs> Next question is: How do we learn to listen to the story without reading our moral assumptions? and expectations into it. How I try to enter into the story and not bring um, moral baggage with me is first, I try to be aware of what's happening internally as I read, because um, all emotions affect our body. And one of the triggers that you can notice about projecting your, your emotional response in is when you read the story and you get a visceral response, you're like, nah, I I'm good with this. Like that's, that's one of the basic steps I try to use for stepping in is when I get this reaction, when I want to put it down, when I suddenly start to get closed off or find I'm checking out and just kind of speed reading to get through a section, I try to pause, breathe, and just try to um, see my awareness what brought this reaction and then try to create a little bit of distance for myself and say, okay, is, is this something that I'm noticing in the story? Did the story say this was bad? Did the story put it in a way that would um, show that they had a pejorative lens that they're trying to get out? Or did I have a reaction, even though it was not an intentional reaction? And within that tension, I can try to enter in a little bit more and let that story um, exist by its own rules. And I can wrestle, like at the end of the day, I can fight with it. I can say, I just like it. I can disown it. I can call it um, sections evil. Like, I don't agree as like your comment is like, we can come to a point where we say, we need to come to grips with the immoral request of God on Hosea. But we can't just start there and shut down the whole story. We have to walk through it. And the way I walk through it is trying to pay attention to my embodiedness. No, that's good. That's good, man. And I, th I think for myself in in that is that I don't think assumptions are necessarily bad, but we want we want to name our assumptions as we go into it, right? And so I know that I'm going to read this text as a 21st century, you know, you know, 21st century African descendant 
uh, but also part, you know, multi-ethnic, part white. So I have all these, this baggage, truthfully, inside of me that comes up, even the sense of like being displaced and not belonging. So when I read a story about people who are displaced and not, and, and, and not, and, and cast out of community in a way that they don't belong, um, it's going to resonate with me in a certain way that it may not resonate with another person who doesn't doesn't wrestle with that 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 you know that as implication in their life. And so, my assumptions about the importance of belonging, like there's a moral implication to um, people not like like if you're a community that doesn't allow people to belong, there's a moral implication to that for me. Where for somebody else who's always belonged, they may not see that moral implication present in the story. So I, I feel like. The more that we can name our lenses is the more that we can actually mine the depths of the story because we can see where our own narratives are kind of bumping heads with the story but also at the same time allowing the narrative to to it's, it's again it's that it's that reciprocation thing that happens or the reciprocal thing that happens when we read the story but the story reads us if you know what i mean and the more we, we the more we're able to actually say okay this is the story this is me but then this is how they're interacting with one another. And we can name those moral assumptions. We can name our expectations that we're coming to the text with. I think it offers, like, it just offers another level of depth for how that story can hit us. And, and, and I think, like, as you said, you pointed out, often it's the triggers of the visceral triggers and things like that. So if you're not someone who's necessarily like super aware of how you feel all the time, but I guarantee that when you watch a movie or when you read a book or, you know, you know, you have a conversation, there are things that push your buttons. There are things that get you, you're like, you know, all of a sudden your armor's up, you, you flinch, you get, you push back a little bit. Look for those moments because that moment is saying something that you're probably bringing to the story. That's you rubbing up against the story. And I think those are really important moments for us to actually get something more out of it. That we are incarnate embodied beings. So if you're not aware, like you said, like, you get that kind of tingle in your back when you see Steve Carell do anything. You're like, Oh, I'm embarrassed for you. Or yeah. Those flinchings. Like, yeah. 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 Like, it's the reason why some people love the movie dinner for smucks and other people absolutely hated it. Cause they were the, they were either the cool kids that were making fun of the smucks or they were the smucks. I loved it, but I was just above the smucks. But definitely not cool. So maybe I hit that middle so, ground. Like neither one of those are me. <laughs> oh, truthfully, I think more the smucks like the movie because it called out like the, the the actual savage nature of like like that whole popular kind of world that happens there. You know, you know. But bro, that works for me. I can be the schmuck. I just know I wasn't cool. So I was like, huh, that is so true. That is cruel. Yeah, it's, it's the, I think it's the same reason like when you call a white person a racist, it's it, it, why it hurts them so much is because it's like, well, no, 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 no. I would never, oh, wait a minute, I've done that. And they actually have to wrestle with their own sense of bigotry and nobody wants to do, forget, that, do that. I forget what's social, um, like, I think it was psychologist or maybe it's just a social theory thing I was reading, but talking about the the most difficult thing for people to accept is what they've already known to be true like if you name something that they don't know and it's truly a shock they said people have an easier time processing but if there's mm -hmm. something they know to be true but don't want to see you get the most yeah it, it was psychology because they're talking about visceral responses to um pointing out what is already true 
like the person knows to be true, but they're having to actively suppress. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I can't remember the, the actual psychologist like that I read about this, but it's the notion of like uh, the projected self, right? So it's like, like we already know our projected self is false, but when someone points out that our projected self is false, it wounds us in a way that it wounds us in a way that, that is much more grievous than if someone says, hey, did you know this about yourself? And we didn't actually know it at all. Right, like, like yeah, I, I can't remember. I, I, I want to say it's Carl Jung, no. but like, but like, no, it was Lacan because you just the way you said woundedness reminded me. It's in quite a few lectures of Peter Rollins and his use of Lacan to say um, our pseudo self, and actually even coming back to the message idea, I think the really important part that you pointed out in that visceral nature is that those often are the times that we're wrestling with some of the pseudo self. It's those responses that we know, like when we read Hosea, you can't exist in um, the 21st century and not know that women are objectified, that um, they're treated as object to be consumed by um, the male gaze. But it's when it's so absurdly named as a tool to display something that we have that response because it kind of pulls the screen down to where Oh yeah, we can be kind of like a benevolent misogynist. But when you go full yeah. misogynist, you're like, oh, that's uncomfortable. No, no, you're supposed to be polite about it. I think the same for racism, like you said. It's like, you're supposed to be benevolently racist, but when you actually go full racist and you name that racism, they're like, no, 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 I'm benevolent. Like, I am benevolent. And these stories of chaos actually make us face those parts of self. Def definitely, man. And I think, but it's also like, how do I put it, man? Like I, I look for myself in, in the mix of that. Like I just, like in my own sort of like, like, like the, the bumping up against homophobia and bumping up against mm -hmm. misogyny and things like that. It's like, I, like, if I can tell you a story that's 25 years old, it's like, well, yeah, you were young. Okay. You made some mistakes. Um, mm -hmm. But reality is, is that I probably said something that was foolish. I probably said something that was hurtful. Um, a lot more recent. And if someone said, Carl, like that was homophobic. If you said that to me now, I'm going to be like, whoa, 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 man. Like, wait a minute. I'm, I'm like, yeah. I got, I got friends that are gay, you know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and I'm going to push me. <laughs> I'm going to push at you. But reality is, is that like, un, like, I think, and that's the thing is that like the image of myself now is someone like, no, I stand for, and I'm with them. I'm an ally and da 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 da. You know what I mean? And so if you call that out of me, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Slow your roll. Because yeah. like, it, it fractures my projected self. And I think we actually, we, we need that fracturing. We need that dissonance to happen. We need that, that tearing apart, that rending of the projection actually in order for our true self to emerge, right? So that, that's, it, it's painful. And, and I think that's why it wounds us so much is because it actually allows, like liberation is, liberation is never not painful. You know what I mean? And I'd say um, in, in that aspect, it also allows us to, experience like Karl Barth says, the God beyond the text. And whenever you see the God who is actually deity, it wrecks some, some of you. So when we wrestle with these parts and we actually experience the God beyond the text, that iconoclastic, it breaks some of the structures or exposes some of the structures. It's a uncomfortable experience and it's even present, sometimes in an oddly more real way. And these broken stories to where you say God cannot be the one who would ask that. The hard question was 
What was the first story in the Bible that you read and realized it was different from the version of the story you thought you knew? How did you feel about it and how, or how did you process it? I think for, for, for me growing up, the, the first story that, that, that was like where I had like that cognitive dissonance moment was the story of like Noah and, 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 and the ark, right? The whole, the, the idea of the flood and, and, and the whole interaction around that, because, you know, I don't know if you had that video game for Nintendo where you had to go around and you got to collect all the animals. You had to get two, two of the different animals. Right. And all of a sudden, like that story was upended. Like I remember reading it, man, probably 15 years. It was like probably about 15 years ago. This is like the first time where, where something was actually like pulled back, like the curtain was pulled back for me was when I, when I, when I, when I started actually reading the Bible for myself versus you know, when I first came back to faith, so I actually, you know, one of my goals was to read the whole Bible and all that kind of stuff. And I started reading all these different stories and just reading into the text, that story of Noah, like we usually finish it and they got off the ark, right? It's like beautiful. There's a rainbow. We made a sacrifice. There was barbecue. God came down and gave like the homie dap. It was awesome, right? But then the, like to see like the, the turmoil, the family turmoil that happens in, in, in Noah's family. Right, like the backbiting of the brothers, the, the 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 intentional trying to shame the father, all these different things that happened, and it's like, didn't like God flood the earth because that kind of stuff was happening, and it's like, okay, well, humanity sucks, and God and God changed his mind because humanity is gonna suck no matter what, right? Like that was a huge revelation for me that at the end of the story, nothing changed. That was like, you know, so for me, like that was, that was the first time. And so I, I think the way that I felt about it was, um, I felt, for me, I felt joy at it because I'm a sick person. So I was like, huh, I knew that, that, you know, that Sunday school happy version, Nintendo video game version of the Bible wasn't true. And it gave me license to be cynical, you, you, you know, you know what I mean? And, and, and enjoy the cynicism which probably wasn't the healthiest or, or most mature response to, to reading the story. You know what I mean? So that's, that was, that was my kind of go back and forth with it, man. How about you, bro? Bro. I'm just really glad that you can own that aspect of it just because um, like, since we've known each other for years and in the beginning, when we were first in Bible college, you had, yeah, I already knew that. What? You just starting to wrestle with that? <laughs> that you can own that part of the first learning. Yeah. Huh. For me, it wasn't the Old Testament because the tradition I was raised in, um, we almost had like a Marcion, uh, Old Testament God, bad, New Testament God, good. Old Testament God means so crazy things happen. New Testament, Jesus. Um, but it was actually Jesus that it first kind of had that mic drop moment to where I didn't know what to do. And it was in his response. And I'd say I, I was raised around the church. I started preaching in my mid-teens kind of idea, but I was always taught to do like one line, not whole section, that mostly did a paragraph. Um, and once we were doing, I believe we did it together, can't remember, but the synoptic gospel classes. And I was reading through Matthew, and we get to that line that I just couldn't quite accept the the smoothing over some of the people uncomfortable with it tried to do where Jesus turned to the Canaanite woman and says, should I feed the dogs? 
And like some people were like, oh no, no, no. Even our professor was like, well, you know, like it was a kinder, like a pet notion. It's like, no, no, it wasn't. Dogs were unclean. Like we can't make Jesus nice. And it was that moment that I was suddenly like, um, I, I don't know what to do. Like, Jesus just turned to a woman crying, saying, my daughter's sick. I don't know what to do. I need your help. Can you save me? And he's like, yeah, move, woman, get out the way. And she had to beg him. And that was to where I had to sit. That was like first moment of like, maybe these stories aren't what I thought they were. No, that's good, man. That's, that's, that's a good example. Uh, and, and yeah, it's because that definitely I've heard so many ways of, of uh, smoothing that, trying to smooth that story out. Like, you know, Jesus is asking her a riddle and it's not that he's calling her a dog. It's just basically if you get the riddle correct, I'll heal your daughter. And I'm like, even that's like, that's kind of jerk, Jesus. You know, I mean? <laughs> even if it is a riddle, like, like, you, like, you know, remember Riddler was the bad guy on Batman. Right. Just just so you know, Jesus, just so you know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> but. Trauma. I don't know about you, but when I've been under high anxiety, high stress, trying to beg for something, I've had a hard time when I had a family member in the hospital figuring out how much change to put into the vending machine. If you came at me with a riddle right there and said, your family member can be healed if you can figure this out. I'm like, oh, yeah. man. Oh, so, <laughs> man, oh. Um, Oh man, sorry. You got real like dad joke mode now. Even I'm not a dad, but I got dad jokes for days, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's a, if it's riddles, man, like I, you know what I mean. So basically, if you want me to finish this message, you have to answer this riddle, Glenn. <laughs> 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 it's like, why did the fox cross the road? Because the chicken already went. Free chicken. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you may finish the message. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> um, no, but, but that's a good example, man. I think, um, I, I, who, what's his name? Uh, Trip Fuller from Homebrew Christianity with his whole saying of God had, like God has to be at least as nice as Jesus. At least like the way that you read that, that, that story there gives God some wiggle room to be a jerk once in a while. I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying? No, no, fair enough. But it, it also, that point of it, though, um, that the way I was raised to read Jesus different than God, to read the New Testament as though suddenly God was like, man, I want to be nice um, before I was a jerk. That's also one of the points of discontinuity that we have to sit in that awkward tension that we don't get to just let go of one. It's like, man, yeah. Galatians I like, but Timothy I don't. So I'll let go of that one. It's like, Luke I like, but parts of Chronicles I don't. So, well, bye to you. Like to keep that whole yeah. sacred narrative in our heads. No, definitely, man. And that's what makes me love like Walter Brueggemann's The Evolution of God, the whole idea of God in recovery, right? God is a God in recovery from violence. God is, a, you know, you know what I mean? And so as, as, as we, we're, we read the biblical narrative, we're seeing the growth of God into the incarnation of Christ, right? So, um, I, I don't know. So for me, like that, that, that it kind of brings that home, you know, you know what I mean? So, 
No, love it. Anytime you can put Brueggemann in. Although I would have went more with Golden Gay because Golden Gay said he hates the use of evolution because he said evolution gives a definitive way it needs to go. He said to where you see undulation throughout the um, sacred text because it took humanity and God to choose new potential to new particularities to enact grace. And that's sometimes he said it went back and you kicked people out of your community. Sometimes it moved forward and created more gracious space to include. But it is the, the co-creative aspect that helps us move our communities and the stories of the text forward. Oh, so the, the hands question is, how do we ensure that we engage the parts of the Bible that trouble us and not just our favorites? The easiest way to do this, because sometimes when we do this, we, we kind of have extremes, um, kind of like when we haven't been eating the best. So the next move we do is like, I'm going to meal plan only vegetables. And we, we don't have any kind of measured movements, which is hard to um, make a consistent habit. I'd say any reading plan that takes you through the whole Bible, any reading plan that takes you through the whole Bible in a year can be a simple starting point so that you're not choosing, so it doesn't put pressure on me to say, oh, shoot, um, what Bible or what part of the Bible have I been missing? You just have to look up something to, okay, well, today I'm in Zephaniah, tomorrow I'm in Haggai, um, then I'm in Mark. It's like, it, it, there's good. There's a lot of good ones, but that to me is one of the best keys for us to have a discipline of reading wider and not just our favorites. Hmm. Okay, that's good, man. Yeah, I would say like something similar. Like, um, you know, this is like I think a chance just to plug what we do with folks, where even on the like on the social media, uh, on Instagram and Facebook, if you follow the IG, like the stories. Um, every single day, uh, the readings there put up by Ryan and, and I think just engaging the story every day, like reading part of the Bible every day, um, and not, and, and it's not, it's chosen for you. So it's at random in your, in, as far as you're concerned, it, it, I think is a great way to, to learn how to do that. I think also something for me that it was helpful at first, but it's not, it wouldn't be helpful for me now, but it was helpful at first was actually um, just like, like literally like opening the Bible and just reading whatever I opened up to at that moment. Um, it was helpful at first because it was, it, it all felt new to me. But as I began to put the pieces of the story together, um, like I, I said, as you go, it's one of those things that got me to, got me to a point, but it wouldn't necessarily get me any further now. You, you know, you know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm pretty much like, I'm like, I know if I open it two thirds, this is going to be the good stuff. You know, say like, I know where it is. Uh, but at first, it really helped me just be like, I've never read that before. That's crazy kind of moments. Um, and so if, if, if like, honestly, if you haven't spent much time reading the biblical text, I would say just pick a way that gets you to open it up every single day to a new section of the Bible um, and read that story and read the whole story. Don't like, 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 like just even, even, even if it's like, you know what, I can manage like this, like one pericope in a sense or one full-on narrative piece you know so you're in the gospels just follow jesus from where it says and then jesus went here and where the story and then he went over here right because that's that, that's another story at least read that section so that you're you're following the, the movement that the author was trying to, to to bring you through versus like you know when we just break it up into chapters sometimes 
we end up starting and stopping in weird places and we actually lose what the story is trying to tell us. So that, that, that would just be some thoughts I have on how do we engage the, the, the you know, the whole Bible, the, the, the broken parts and the beautiful parts as we go along. And I, I do enjoy what you pointed out. There's part of the, the ways that can make it difficult for us to engage or at least difficult for us to be able to understand because there is a lot of crazy in scripture. There's so much crazy that that's why we do this in um, concert with each other because we each have different favorite parts to discuss. So as we share with each other, as we have multiple voices speaking in, some people will specialize in different areas of scripture and say, oh, but did you know? But also what Carl said, which was very important, is try to make sure that you stay around the reading blocks. Because if you just stop at chapter two, um, my favorite, because it's for the creation accounts, if you start um, Genesis and you just read the first chapter, you actually don't get the big moment of Sabbath rest unless you go through 2-3. Because 2-3 is where it starts to announce, and then God rested because creation was done. You will end incomplete. You'll end before that actual climax of the story of rest happened. But if you go too far, you're going to wind up in the middle of Eden and not go through the whole story. And you might conflate those two creation accounts because they're different accounts with different purposes and different story. But if you pay attention to those reading blocks, you'll, you'll at least get some of the like full episodes. So as we went over today, the, the introduction to say, what do we do with these stories of scripture? What happens when we allow the broken parts of the Bible to read us and we read them? we discovered that we'll have physiological responses, that our bodies are gonna to react to these as old stories with old morals conflict with our present understanding of what it means to be human and self. And within that response, we get this beautiful moment to pause and not just project into the story, but allow these responses to give us pause to say, okay, what's being told? How do I hear it? How do I understand it? So it can be told in its own right. And within those conflicts, we get to have moments of revealing and understanding ourselves, whether it's a response to misogyny, whether it's a response to violence or coercion, or whether it's a response to the good and the beautiful. But these responses give us a key to understanding how we're reacting to those stories. But we want to do our best to understand our response does not dictate. So we can sit in the stories and not try to say they're good or bad prematurely. And then as we step in, into the part to where we said, what parts of the story actually shocked us at first? We realized that it was the part that went outside of what was expected. So for myself, it was when Jesus called a woman a dog. For Carl, it was that moment that God's actions seemed a bit impotent because he flooded the world and nothing changed because one chapter later, humanity was still doing things. But we have these moments that are good to note because these create gems and milestones in our life. When we get to say, when did we hear God speak? Or when did we wrestle with the text? And it shows our true engagement. And how do we ensure that we actually stay present in these hard to read stories? We stay present through disciplines and habits that encourage us to read widely. And we make a discipline of it so that through consistent reading, we don't just stay into the one or two sections that we love. We don't just hear 1 Corinthians 13 every time we go to a wedding or a funeral and realize love is patient, love is kind. 
we also sit in these stories where love is a man marrying a prostitute and naming his children not mine. Because in these moments, these consistencies, we get to delve into the rich, complex history of this text. 